What's the difference between existing and surviving? The reason I ask is that we're going to start this episode by jumping right into the word of the day. Chosen Shung Tsun, which means, to, as, as I understand it anyway, to exist or to survive. This is the Shung character, which means kind of like flow and birth. You might know it from, or I know it from uh, Ren Sheng and Shenghua, two different words with subtle or not so subtle differences, uh, which more or less mean life. And I can admit that um, probably another reason I have positive uh, feelings about the word Sheng is I associate it with Sheng Pi, which means like draft beer. So that gives you an idea of where I was learning my Chinese when I lived in China. But anyway, um, the difference between existing and survival is something we might be considering in our conversation about our chosen book and author for this episode. It is Shui Mo's The Woman, the Camels and the Doles, which is taken from an audiobook. We're doing an audiobook this time, uh, although this book does exist in, in print and I think is an ebook as well. In any case, the book this story is taken from is Selected Stories. The sorry, the 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 selected stories of Shuemo. And my guests are the producer of the audiobook and the voice actor whose voice you hear if you do indeed listen to that audiobook, Sarah Lam. Pretty sure this is the first time we've had an actor on the pod, so that in itself is um, very exciting, if you ask me. So I'll sign off there as far as philosophizing goes and take us into the churchific news, the translated Chinese fiction news. It's just basically four recommendations this time of some things that you can check out. So the first uh, recommendation or news item I'm going to shove into your ears is the Paper Republic Guide to Chinese Literature. They've actually gone and made a book, if you can believe it. Uh, so it's available to buy for £15 GBP if you're in the UK, or you can get it in the US for $18, Canada for $25, Canadian dollars, CAD, that's funny, and uh, $28 if you're in Australia. It's also available as an ebook Ooh, in all the different Kindle stores. I won't bother reading all those prices, but yeah, it's, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll read one just for fun. You can get it off the Japanese Kindle store for 1,237 Japanese yuan, yen, sorry, Chinese bias rearing its head there. So I'll, I'll just read the blurb for this thing. Paper Republic's definitive guide to contemporary Chinese literature in translation features detailed biographical entries covering almost, and then it's in bold text, so I'll do my bold text voice, 100 of the most important writers working in the Chinese language today. From Annie Baby, I think that's Annie Baobei, who we heard about from Harvey Tomlinson in the Murong episode. From Annie Baby to Zhang Yuaran by way of Nobel Prize winner Mo Yan. The biographies are complemented by in-depth and essays, sorry, oh dear, essays is also bolded, let's redo that, by in-depth essays. And then it's got some bullet points, very nice bullet points. They are, uh, bullet point number one, Dylan Levi King assesses the changing role of the author in Chinese society. Then US-based academic Zhu Ping discusses women's writing in Chinese. Then translator and scholar Andrea Lingenfelter provides an introduction to the rich but often neglected field of Hong Kong literature. Yeah, that's something this podcast has really neglected, to be honest. We need to do more stuff from Hong Kong. Next bullet point. Emily Shueni Jin outlines the increasingly influential field of Chinese science fiction. 
the bold the bold uh bold text voice is getting worse with each time i use it i think i'll see if i can pick up before this blurb ends next bullet point rachel chung now this is the i think it's the canto spelling c-h-e-u-n-g i actually don't really know how to pronounce that so sorry if i've pronounced that wrong rachel chung brings us bang up to date with the latest in chinese internet literature sorry about that uh, final bullet point a powerful introductory essay by Xiaolo Guo, the Chinese-born, UK-based novelist, gives a view from the inside. Right, I spent a lot of time on that one, didn't I? Let's let's go to the next news item. So this is something you can listen to. Actually, this is loads of different things you can listen to, because this guy I'm about to describe, I think, has been doing the rounds of the China podcastosphere, or at least a few different podcasts, not, not all China-focused podcasts, but it's the academic Professor Craig Clunas, a fellow Scot, I do believe, if his voice is anything to go by. And he's been talking about an exhibition that happened at the Freud Museum in London. What I have been to when I was last... No, sorry, not when I was last in London. When I was last in London for a significant... very, I was there for like a week. Uh, I was there too long. But I filled up my time with lots of museum visits. And one of the places I visited was the Freud Museum. So anyway, it's 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 his old house, basically. I think it's the place where he died or where he lived. He spent his last years. But there was an exhibition there of like of his Chinese collection, all the sort of Chinese things he owned. And uh, spoilers, the interesting thing about it is that it's not real antiques. It's a lot of fakes and stuff. And the other, like, this is a spoiler, I suppose. But um, he, he, was, he had books on his bookshelf about all the other... Um, sort of worldly antiques he had. He had, which I, I saw a collection. It was on the shelves and described in the museum. He had loads of stuff from like uh, ancient Greece and Roman Mediterranean, Egypt, and he, he was like knowledgeable about that stuff, or at least he'd read it. But when it came to anything Chinese, he didn't really know much at all. So, um, and it, it, in the podcast hosted by the Freud Museum and in various other podcasts, for example, on um, Chinese Whispers, which is under the umbrella of the Spectator magazine. I, it's terrible, I forgot the name of the host, but that's that's a good interview. He's, I'm sure he's done some others on different pods. Basically, if you want to hear Craig Clunas talking about Freud's sort of non-connection with Chinese culture, but also he goes into how his uh, ideas were sort of processed and absorbed, repressed, and then returned. I didn't mean, you know, I didn't plan to say repressed and returned, but there you go. Um, that's just how much of a Freudian I am, how they were repressed and returned in the PRC. Uh, so yeah. Just, just check it out. Again, I've linked to the uh, page on the Freud Museum's website, but there he's he's done at least, I think, two or three of these interviews on the interwebs. I think they're probably sort of uh, all the same content, but with slight variations. I wonder if Freud had ideas about repetition. I think he did. I just can't think what they are. Okay, it's a very spirited news segment today, isn't it? I'm not normally this bouncy. I think it's just because I've, I've just had my dinner. I had pasta. Okay, next news item. It's something you can listen slash watch to. It's so you may have guessed already. It's an interview on YouTube and it's between Jing Tzu and Dan Russell. I don't know who Dan Russell is, to be honest, but <laughs> they're talking about Jing Tzu's new book, Kingdom of Characters, which I actually got for my birthday. Uh, I'll just read the blurby thing here, the, the video description. That'll do my job for me. What does it take to reinvent a language? After a meteoric rise, China today is one of the world's most powerful nations. Just a century ago, it was a crumbling empire with literacy reserved for the elite few. There's no bold text here, by the way, so you're only going to get my normal voice. As the world underwent a massive technological transformation that threatened to leave them behind. 
In Kingdom of Characters, Jing Tzu argues that China's most daunting challenge was a linguistic one, the century-long fight to make the formidable Chinese language accessible to the modern world of global trade and digital technology. Ooh. This is, a, this is well written. Second paragraph. Kingdom of Characters follows the bold innovators who reinvented the Chinese language. Among them, an exiled reformer who risked a death sentence to advocate for Mandarin as a national language, a Chinese Muslim poet who laid the groundwork for, chi- uh, for Chairman Mao's phonetic writing system, and a computer engineer who devised input codes for Chinese characters on the lid of a teacup from the floor of a jail cell. Without their advances, China might never have become the dominating force we know today. With larger-than-life characters and unexpected perspective on the major events of China's tumultuous 20th century, Tzu reveals how language is both a technology to be perfected and a subtle yet potent power to be exercised and expanded. Oh, that was fun to read. Um, And funnily enough, the interview is dated here in the description, and it was recorded on my birthday, the 24th of Feb amusingly but the only just the video only just went up uh, yesterday weirdly enough i was just searching through youtube for talks anything to do with chinese lit and this one had gone up an hour before i started searching so i'm gonna say it's fate the hand of fate which will be coming up in our discussion about shuimo's work funnily enough okay the last thing uh long news longish news segment today so it's a book and you should definitely, I was about to say you should definitely check it out. Perhaps not if you're not wealthy, because this one costs £120 as a hardback, and the ebook is a, a bargain of £33.29. So if you may have, you may have guessed, if you know anything about publishing, this is an academic book. The pricing is designed to leech money out of libraries, uh, university budgets, via their libraries purchasing systems. The only economical way to read this thing would be if you've got academic access, presumably to download the chapters as PDFs, I, th- I, th- I think that's that would be the best way to get it. Um, or maybe wait a while and buy a second-hand copy. But all that, you know, grumbling about the broken academic publishing system aside, um, this is a book that is forthcoming. So it's coming out on March the 11th, which is two days away from the time of that I'm speaking into the microphone right now. So just just to remind you, the, the book's called Eco-Criticism and Chinese Literature, Imagined Landscapes and Real Lived Spaces. So academic book. Here we go. Focusing on eco- eco-critical aspects throughout Chinese literature, particularly modern and contemporary Chinese literature, the contributors to this book examine the environmental and ecological dimensions of notions such as Qing and Jing. And if I knew the tones, you'd probably know which words I was talking about. Although maybe if you know your Chinese environmental and ecological vocab, you'll also be an advantage here. Anyway, continuing. Chinese modern and contemporary environmental writing offers a unique aesthetic perspective towards the natural world. Such a perspective is mainly ecological and allows human subjects to take a benign and non-utilitarian attitude towards nature. The contributors to this book demonstrate how Chinese literary ecology tends towards an ecological system holism from which all human behavior should be closely examined. They do so by examining a range of writers and genres, including Liu Cixin's science fiction, Wu Mingyi's environmental fiction, and Zhang Chongzhi's historical narratives. I'm going to pause here. Um, something I didn't comment on on the Paper Republic book is how many of those uh, editors, um, or sorry, writers contributed essays at the start. That have how many of them have been on this podcast? It's just two actually. It was Dylan Levi King and Emily Shuani Jin. But yeah. Um, on that topic, here in this book, we're rattling off authors who've been covered on the show. We've done Liu Cixin, we've done Wu Mingyi, we have not done Zhang Chongzhi. Maybe we should do Zhang Chongzhi, but only if 
books exist in translation. Anyway, continuing. This book provides valuable insights for scholars and students looking to understand how Chinese literature conceptualizes the relationship between humanity and nature as well as our role and position within the natural realm. Whew! So, it's it's not all on one's theme, which is why it's harder to write a great... Well, it is on one's theme, but uh, it's not all on one topic, so it's harder to write a um, punchy, really punchy blurb for it. So yeah, this is an interesting book. If you've got academic access, I suggest checking it out. If not, perhaps you should use cunning means, like, I don't know, um, get a friend to get the PDF from online, a chapter PDF online for you, or, I don't know, buy it secondhand further down the line. I'm not sure exactly. But yeah, it, I, I felt I should mark it. Anyway, that is the end of the Trishific News. So I'm going to end this rather lengthy intro section here, and we can continue with the show and you'll hear my chat with Nicola Clayton and Sarah Lamb. So I'll shut up now. So on the show, we have Sarah Lamb and Nicola Clayton. Really exciting to have you both here. We're here to talk about not a conventional book, but an audio book. So in relation to that book and just in relation to yourselves, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? And um, let's just arbitrarily start with Sarah, if that's all right. Yeah. Hi, my name is Sarah Lam, and I am an actor. <laughs> short but sweet. <laughs> that, there you go. Short but sweet. Uh-huh. And that will make more sense. I, I've said it's an audiobook, so I suppose that clears up who you are in relation to the book. Nicola, what about yourself? Are you an actor? Uh, no, I'm not. My name's Nicola Clayton. I am an audiobook producer and director. Um, and essentially what that means is that when Sarah narrates the book, I sit in the recording booth and uh, listen to her and support her and uh, and enable her in any way that, that needs to happen or not as we go through. So I'm the listening buddy for the recording, basically. That's that's my job. And in terms of other background, I guess, um, what might be relevant as well is to say that um, in the 80s, the early 80s, I studied modern Chinese studies at Leeds. So I have a bit of a connection to China way back when. Right. And the Leeds Chinese department is, if, if any Chinese department in the world is a friend of the podcast, it's that one, because I've been to a couple of their uh, events. They're just wonderful. I guess that's all I really needed to know about each of you. Uh, the listeners might want to know more, but I guess they'll find out as we go along. Okay. Uh, so there is another presence here in the show with us, uh, not in body, but it's the author of the audiobook that you guys have helped bring into existence is Shui Mo. So we should introduce him. Would either of you, maybe looking more to Nicola here, yes. like to tell us a little bit more about Shui Mo? Yes, yeah, sure. So, um, he was born um, in Gansu province um, in 1963 um, in a remote village called Liangzhou, um, which is now known as Wuwei. Forgive my tones, which are never that good. His birth name or his, his uh, non-writing name non is Chen Kai Hong. Um, and he took the pen name when he became a writer, um, Shui and Mo meaning snow and desert and his idea was that he would bring a cooling sort of uh, compassion 
to the desert, to the, the sort of stresses and, and the dryness and the cruelty of the desert. So that's where I believe that his his pen name has come from. Um, his family were desert farmers. So uh, they lived in a rural village um, in the Hersey Corridor, which I think is towards the north of Gansu province. It's on the Silk Road. There wasn't a lot of money and there weren't many books. So most of his early story story experiences or, or stories that he heard were verbal storytelling very apt things we our form is verbal storytelling too um and generally he would have um visitors to the family home and they would tell stories and then he would remember them and then relate them back to his father to, much to his parents delight basically his father's delight so and he also used to after school he would go to a neighbor a blind neighbor who used to play i think it's called the bandalore it's a string instrument and sing traditional gansu uh stories and so he sort of learnt his stories from verbal storytelling from songs and didn't really get access to a great deal of books until he was uh, around the age of 15 he won um he wrote an essay that won a competition and that got him a place at a school i think in the um the, the sort of regional local regional level it was a, it was not his local school he was able to go to a, a school that had lots of books so suddenly he could read not just more chinese books but he could read western books he was particularly fond of tolstoy and that just opened his world. And he'd also had a very influential uncle who had uh, persuaded him, encouraged him to, have to to apply perseverance. So he's quite a disciplined young lad, basically. He read mm. a lot of books. He kept notes. He wrote a diary. Uh, and he did well at school. He didn't go to university, but he went on to become a high school teacher. And through from quite a young age, he wanted to write even though he didn't really have books around him. So he spent a lot of time writing. And then when he was in his mid-20s, he had a, a story published in Fetian magazine. And that um, brought him some fame and some public recognition, which, um, as I understand it, completely freaked him out. Uh, he, he got writer's block. He had terrible anxiety and he just really got stuck. So he turned to Buddhism his, the sort of local Buddhism that was the um, religion for that was very popular around that area. Obviously, when you think of Gansu, you think of the Mogao Caves at Dunghuang. So there was a history of Buddhism around there. And he turned to Buddhism, Buddhism and its practices and yoga and meditation with an aim to calm his anxiety, which worked. But it also brought him to those stories. And he finally managed to get his writing going by writing a classic story, Buddhist story, into a novel. And so he got back into writing through his Buddhism practices and was able and lost his writer's block and hasn't really had any since by the sounds of things because he's written about 80 pieces of work. <laughs> I would love to ask the question. Yeah. Uh, the name of the book that he wrote when he had writer's block. And oh, yes. Yes, of course. I do know the name of the book. It is... Did you say it was a classic Buddhist tale? That he yes, did? it's called The Holy Monk and the Spirit Woman. Can you repeat that, please? Yes, The Holy Monk and yes. the Spirit Woman. Thank you. A very mini summary of it. Um, Sarah, it's a magical realist story inspired by the Tibetan Buddhist master Kyongpo Nagyo and his quest for enlightenment as he journeys across Tibet and Nepal in the 12th century. Thank you. And it, yes, and, and there's a, a translation by J.C. Cleary. 
Okay. Perhaps I can be in touch with you directly about that. Yes. Yes, thank you. Yes, do. Um, so I was just about to say, Angus, the, the sort of stories that he wrote after he overcame his writer's block were based around Buddhism. But he then turned to stories that were based on his homeland, where he came from, the villages, the world that he grew up in. And this he turned into a trilogy called the Desert Trilogy. And it's made up of three books, Desert Rights, Desert Hunters and White Tiger Pass. And uh, they are all being translated by Howard Goldblatt and Sylvia Lee-Jung Lin. Have I said that right? Sylvia Lin. Yep. Yeah. I think that's his wife. Yes, it is his wife. Yes. So the first two have been translated and published. They're available on Amazon, uh, I think as Kindle uh one definitely in print. And the third one, White Tiger Pass, is currently being translated. It took 20 years for him to write the trilogy. So he started in his mid-20s and he, they were published when he was 46 in uh, around 2000. And he became famous overnight in China. So suddenly, fortunately... This time he didn't get writer's block. You know, this time he had become accustomed to what he was. And obviously he was a much older man, um, mm-hmm. you know, more uh, seasoned with life. He, he That trilogy is the one he's most famous for. The Holy Monk and the Spirit Woman actually became the third of a trilogy of that he calls the Soul Trilogy. And he wrote two other books, I believe, after that. It makes kind of, anyway. So um, I, I'm less familiar with those books. He has written in all sorts of forms. So he writes novels, but he also writes nonfiction. He writes basically self-help, self-help books or spiritual guidance books. So he's written a book about yoga. He's written a an epic poem called Suo Sa Lung. I think I think that's what it's called. Forgive my tones, which are probably all off, but it's Suo Sa Lung. Sounds weird when I say it. Anyway, it looks much more normal when it's written down. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, that's an epic poem that's, I think, fairly recently finished. Um, and he's also written a travel log. He went to the US in, I think, 2019, and he wrote uh, a travel log about his experiences there, which he called A Contemporary Don Quixote in North America. Oh, yes, that rings a bell. He basically examines the US from an outsider's perspective. So this is the sort of background. He's famous as an author now in China. He's famous as someone who offers an alternative lifestyle. Um, And he also, quite fascinatingly, is famous as a brand. Mm. His name has sort of become a brand as well as as his sort of credibility. So from these small beginnings in a village where, you know, he had the odd comic book or the odd school and uh, school book, but basically most of the storytelling that he was the recipient of was verbal <clears throat> or sung. He has ended up being a prolific writer, uh, and always his stories are based uh, come out of his experience of of being from Gansu and his Buddhism. All right, that was a very comprehensive intro. Thank you very much, Nicola. Was that too long? <laughs> no, no, perfect, perfect. Not not too long, not too short. Um, but... Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I I didn't know about Tremo when I started reading, yeah. and I just by coincidence happened to be Buddhist too. And the, the the bits that I wanted to pick out, I wanted to read a paragraph that particularly you know affected me on the reading. 
not the actual me verbally reading, but me just reading the book. Um, I, I, so I've typed it out, and um, it's just so coincident, coincidental that the bit that I've typed out is is um, uh, so indicative of um, this man's life and his beliefs, and therefore chimes with mine. So um, thank you for giving us that wonderful introduction. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> My my pleasure. You know, I remember when I first read his biography, I thought it was a fantastic story in itself. His story is a fantastic story. I'm glad. It was wonderful to discover that you had that connection with Buddhism. Did you say you wanted to read that part, Sarah? Um, yes. I mean, I at some point, at some point, I can read it now or I can read it later, you know. Oh, no time like the present. I think. Okay. All right. <laughs> it was uh, a... A, uh, a question that, uh, that I was thinking about, which part of, of, of the story had the most effect you know, on me as a reader. And it was very different reading the book from, from uh, you know, for, for as, as, as just enjoying it, as opposed to reading the book to prepare to read. And that's a very, very different hat that perhaps we might discuss later. Um, and I just read this this passage and it meant so much to me that I thought well I'll type that out um, and it is about uh, the book is about uh, two sisters or they were sisters in law actually um, and uh, there was a character called Lan Lan um, and um, I, I enjoyed Lan Lan's character very much um, and there was another character and the, uh, the sister-in-law was called Ying and um, I, I really felt for Lan Lan um, throughout the book, um, particularly when she talked about a marriage, which perhaps we'll come to later. But at one part in the book, Lan Lan is pretty close to dying. I mean, they were pretty close to dying throughout the book. <laughs> but there was one very, very intense part when Lan Lan had become trapped in, in the sand. And um, she's just so full of courage. And she says... Remember, whatever happens, don't be afraid. Fear kills. Once you start to be afraid, it gets worse. It creeps up on you, little by little. It's a seed that germinates and blossoms and sets seed again. Eventually, it becomes a smothering black cloud or a great flood that drowns you. You will lose the will to struggle on and you just give up and let yourself die. You'll die because your mind died first. Once your mind dies, you're dead. So that was one of the phrases, one of the passages that Lan Lan said. Um, and there was another one that I typed up, but I could actually be actually reading the whole book on this podcast <laughs> which is not desirable but but it, it really it it's you know this very very simple woman through the writer uh gives you these wonderful things that you can just take away with you and and remember you know and he and 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 it is said so simply so it's not prolonged and you don't you don't get lost in what someone's trying to say. It's simple, short, powerful words. So um, 
anyway, that that wasn't read as Lan Lan. That was just read. No, that well, I was I was thinking that. I thought I thought this is being read as Sarah. That's well, yes. people, if people want yeah. to hear it read as Lan Lan, they'll have to get the audiobook. <laughs> Very well pitched. But it, you know, it is. Um, she creates these wonderful turning points, Lan Lan, mm. and in the story, and uh, as you say, when she. We hear a lot more from Ying than we do from Lan Lan. Lan Lan's action and Ying is thought. Mm-hmm. And and but when we hear thought from Lan Lan, it's very powerful. Mm. Just as when we get action from Ying, that's also very powerful. Isn't that? There's a lovely counterbalance. So they are a lovely counterbalance. And it was I mean that the plot is actually very simple. Mm. You know, it's about two women on camelback, for want of a better expression, who go on a journey to seek out the salt pans. But that's just the physical journey. Really, I think this book is, to me, is, is about the inner journey um, and, and, their, and their refusal, Lan Lan's refusal to give up hope. And when they actually faced the very real possibility of death how they how they a came to terms with it and b their attitude to living and dying and at the towards the very very end of the book you saw by their actions and what they said what was important to them and for lan lan it was her spiritual her spiritual journey that she'd come on and her life and what she had fought to overcome, and she retained, I think, through her uh, her spirituality, she retained that essence of hope and courage and action. And for Ying, yeah. and for Ying, it was it was actually about the love for yeah. another human being. And I sort of, you know, I'm very fortunate to be to to to, to have a very very. Uh, loving marriage for decades but when I read this story about Ying I thought oh but Lan Lan is so wonderful but then you realized you know that this woman uh, Ying her power was so so different you know when when Lan Lan was really stark yeah it was Ying that took the action and saved her life you know um anyway it's um I I digress please (laughs) okay yeah i was just thinking i need to keep us moving uh as much as i'm enjoying hearing the back and forth i was going to say um a a nice thing about learning so much about shuemo was is that he's um information about him in english online is sort of scattered it's a weird thing where he is really quite present on the western internet in some ways to the extent that i found he has a pinterest or at least someone's running a pinterest for him but on the other hand most of what you can find is quite scattered, um, and his publication in English, I think, is quite has been quite limited so far. Um, but what I was going to say, to more to the point of everything you two have just been talking about, is I, I did not know that he had a reputation for being like very self-disciplined. I did know Buddhism was important for him, and I did know I did know that he had a sort of a self-help angle to his writing and his brand as well. And I feel that all three of those things do sort of shine through in this story, which I realise we haven't named yet. So that'll be what I okay. what I drive us to next. <laughs> but yeah, um, the the word that kept springing into my mind is it's one of the words I keep shoehorning into this whole podcast 
almost every episode is, ex- well, it's an exaggeration, but many, many episodes is existential. I've got a very strong ex- existentialism radar. And yet the focus on life, death, and sort of willing through your own willpower, creating your values, letting them see you through life. I felt that a lot in the book. And the self-help angle, I did feel through this story and many others in, in the book, the audiobook we're looking at, we do get par- very quotable paragraphs that wouldn't look too out of place in a possibly Buddhist-inflected, but not necessarily Buddhist-inflected um, self-help book. Like, I was thinking that line, when your mind dies, you die, so yeah. never give up. That would make an awful lot of sense in a sort of a atheist perspective as well. Yeah. If, if you believe the material world is all we've got, all the more reason to, you know, make the most of it while you're here. But Buddhism in, in many forms of Buddhism is an atheist religion. Right. You know, I mean, there were so many different Buddhisms on there, but but many of them are, you know, are, is an atheist religion compared with maybe Christianity, you know, so yeah. I'm surprised. Yes. So um, the, the million dollar question, what is this story called? Oh, yes. It's called The Women, the Camels and the Dolls. And we should make a distinction here. That's a story in the book. Yes, we're discussing uh, uh, the novella, which is, is the fourth yeah. of four stories, which is in Selected Stories by Shuemo. And um, it was translated by Nikki Harmon uh, and is available in all formats, including audiobook. <laughs> right, okay, so print, ebook, audiobook, yes, yeah. Desert Scroll, maybe? Uh, I don't know about the Desert Scroll, it might be a oh. bit long for that. <laughs> true, true, you need a long scroll. Um, how did this audiobook come about, if we can share that story at all? Yeah, sure. Um, it's actually quite a simple story. I met the publisher at the Frankfurt Book Fair in 2019. Um, we kept in contact. And then last year, they got in touch and asked me whether I'd be prepared to, um, or I would like to produce the audiobook for them. Once we sort of figured out that that was possible and how we would do it, um, the next major thing was to cast. So... <laughs> And then casting is really key for an audiobook. I don't know how much you listen to audiobooks, but it really makes a difference to the experience of the book. And with this book, three out of the four stories had female protagonists, and there's some quite sensitive subjects covered, um, particularly relating to to women's health and experiences. So um, we definitely wanted to go for a female narrator. And then um, we also wanted someone who particularly at the beginning of this story, the the women, the camels and the dolls, there is a narrator voice. So we wanted someone who brought, the, should we say, the, the maturity of the author and the life experience. So I, I knew about Sarah from Inspector Chen. <laughs> Sarah um, plays Pei Chun in the BBC Radio 4 dramatisation of the Inspector Chen novels. I'm saying that right, aren't I? Is it Pei Chin? Yeah. So... Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, that's how I knew Sarah's voice. Um, I'd known Sarah from other things as well, but that's particularly how I sort of associated. And we were lucky enough, Sarah at the time was in one production and rehearsing for another, both theatre productions. And we managed to just fit in the little window that she had for a few days, cr- across a few days in, in late August. So that's basically how the book came about. We recorded it in about two and a half days, was it, Sarah? Or was it two days? It was over three days, I think. It was, but over, it was, it was over three, three days. days. Yeah. And then um, edited, proofed, delivered, 
within two weeks sort of thing. So fairly straightforward audiobook production process. All right. Um, I'm going to follow up my $1 million question with a $2 million question. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the, the story is called The Women, the Camels and the Dolls. We've yeah. established that. We've established that the women, Lan Lan and Ying, are crossing the desert. That would explain what the camels are for. Yes. Well, what on earth are dolls? Oh, that's a very good question. Now, I'd never heard of dolls before. They are wild mm. dogs that have a particularly vicious way of attacking their prey. Uh, which is explained at the beginning of the story. And I don't know how much you would want me to go into here or whether we should, what do you, are you, are you wanting that detail? Oh, um, we could, we could talk a little bit about what the dolls are doing in the story without uh, spelling out where they do or don't make their exit, what they do or don't do. Okay. So the dolls, as we discover in the introduction, have a way of attacking their prey, which is, really rather nasty so if you're of a sensitive nature close your ears for the next sort of 15 seconds but essentially what they do is they 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 attack the stomach of their victim they sink their teeth in they rip the intestines out and then they run away so they basically disembowel people which is or, or animals hopefully animals not people but obviously we have this situation early on in the story where the girls have they're not girls the young women actually they're not so young the women <laughs> have um, uh, realised that they're being stalked by a pack of dolls, of these wild dogs, and are fearful for their lives. So it has, this encounter has a knock-on effect that affects the whole of the rest of their journey. Right. I actually realised we should probably turn to the camels briefly as well, because (laughs) although I think probably a lot of our listeners wouldn't be surprised uh, to learn that there are a lot of camels inside China, we might have some who, who would be. I certainly can say that when I went off to go live and work in China as a TEFL teacher, I didn't expect to see a camel occasionally in the little town I was in, way away in Zhejiang province in the east. But sure enough, there was a camel. And if if you know a bit about the geography of China, it's not really so strange. So just to uh, bulk this question out a bit, why are the women riding on camels like apart to get from the salt pans, what are the camels to them? Okay. Um, well, they're the most they're the standard method of transport. Basically, they don't have bicycles. They don't. You wouldn't cross a desert on a bicycle, really, because you don't have roads. So camels are able to deal with the terrain that the girls are that the women. I don't know why I keep calling them girls. That the women are crossing and they also are real characters. You know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I just uh, yes in there to say that in fact you know the title really does uh, it does give fair fair credit to not only the dolls but the the camel as well and uh, again you know towards the end of the book when the camel is really struggling and suffering um, it really got to me you know um, and the camel the the writer gives this camel his not only it is a it is a male camel um and and Shuemo gives this male camel a very male identity and the camel at one point actually one of the camels actually wanders off and there is this whole backs there's a whole psychology about why the camel would do that and he talks about the camel's feelings and he he says he says something like this. He said, you could have hazarded a guess that it had come back. 
because in fact the camel, camel does come back because it couldn't bear to abandon two women in the desert or something like that. But it must have had a desperate struggle with its conscience to make that decision as desperate as a battle with the dolls. And when the camel is really, really struggling, um, the, 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 the women offer him some fluid, some liquid, and you, you actually get inside the psyche of the camel when he says, the camel never imagined that this lovely woman would give it oil to drink. She must be teasing. The camel was truly moved. Now, how wonderful to write about a camel like that. I mean, I, I, I will never think about camels in the same way, you know, because they, they were such a part of the book. So I just thought that I would. I yeah, would and with that, Nicola. You know. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I think what what I love about the writing, and obviously the translation as well, which is you don't always think about, but it's beautifully translated, is that the uh, the author changes the the point of view throughout the story. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we're with Lanlan, sometimes we're with uh, Ying, and then sometimes we've got the author's voice. But at one point, the point that Sarah is talking about we actually go into camel perspective, which is just fabulous. You know, we hear the camel's thoughts and voices. So in a way, that's the most wonderful compassion for his characters that comes through the writing. So these the, the camels are so central to the story. Um, and you're right, I hadn't thought about it, Sarah, but they bring a male a perspective and a male energy to the story that would be missing otherwise that's only reflected through the women's thoughts they actually have this uh, part in the story yeah right oh gosh i had a question in my head and we've and just taken you right just, off it's just evaporated <laughs> no, no, let me give me a little second um nope it's not coming i don't think it was important anyway was it about the camels um, or was it about the I really don't know. Oh, I've remembered. I've oh. remembered. So you mentioned the quality of the translation, and okay. it's not surprising to hear that it's a great translation because it's from Nikki Harmon, friend of the show. In fact, I think a two two time guest on the show, possibly three times, but certainly sort of a one of the the totems of of the podcast. I've done a lot of her translations. So I just wanted to ask. Did either of you have any contact with her at all, or indeed any contact with Shwemo, or were they both sort of distant figures at the other side of the desert in this project? So with Nikki, I I know her from Chinese literature events. Um, I don't, I didn't discuss the book with her actually. No. Um, in terms of Shwemo, I was in contact with someone at his publisher. So when I have, okay. there were questions. There were the old question that I had about the text. So then I did ask, uh, you know, I checked certain bits of, of, of information. There was one bit of the translation that is, okay, so we've talked about being in Lanlan's perspective and we talk about being in Ying's and the camels and the authors. At one very, very small point, we also go into the perspective of some bullets, as in gun bullets. <laughs> okay, and I, and, and I just had to check that translation because it was such a strange sentence. But actually, it was totally accurate. I mean, I, you know, I, I had the Chinese, so I, I did go back and look. And then I did check. And it's like, no, OK. So there was so there were one or two things where I did check. Um, uh, and I sort of checked a couple of pronunciations as well. All right. OK. Funnily enough, that was 
the other one of the other quotes you've got yeah one of the other quotes i've i've actually got here not just from the camels but from the perspective of the bullets read the bullets line because it's extraordinary okay so listeners nicholas pointing at the screen i'm I'm, I'm directing sarah (laughs) it's okay okay so it says so so it's written there was a burst of gunfire the cluster of pellets whistled on their way zooming towards their target like honeybees to blossom, like hungry houseflies homing on foul blood, like a rather stallion leaping out of its corral, like ejaculated sperm surging towards the welcoming womb, like tadpoles joyfully freed from the entrapping mud into fresh water. Is that paragraph? Yes, it was. There was a little bit just after that where they... As they're shooting across, they seem to turn their eyes back and wiggle their tails. Right. Uh, do you remember that? To sort of say, hey, we're on the way for you there, ladies, sort of thing. But, but what a coincidence that we yes. have both found that. I mean, and I think that's also a one wonderfully captures the descriptive elements of Shuemo's writing mm. because there, there is so much rich, richness in the description that it brings character and colour to so many things. And this also is wonderful when you're working with an audiobook because Sarah can then bring that even more to life. She's, you know, the palette is is there. You know, uh, uh, what a narrator does is a narrator paints with words. You know, they, they take the words off the page and they create a, a rainbow colour of, of characters and, and atmospheres and pacing that isn't necessarily in the reader's ear if they read it off the page. You know, it, so. the, the other thing I think um, when I was thinking about this book is that as an actor, it, you play, uh, normally play maybe one or two parts in a play. Um, I have played multi roles. I've, I've, my last play, I played, I think, four or five parts, all with different accents. But quite apart from that, um, normally you would play one one character in a play and you are the protector of that character your whole job as an actor is to deliver that character so you only really see the play from that character's viewpoint whereas when you are narrating you are you know you represent all those characters and you have to bring all those characters to life whether they're the camel or they're you know landland or indeed the the, the, the writer's voice themselves. So that's quite a different different job that a narrator has uh, from from the actor's job when they're when they're performing in theatre or or even radio. It, it, it is a very different craft. Uh, you know, it's a different kind of skill, and it's a yeah, it, it's very different um, skill base, and also obviously listening experience. You know, reading experience. Right. Totally. I can I can see you want to move us on, Angus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a little comment of my own. This this is on my mind because in the last episode I was talking to Jenna, or sorry, two episodes ago, I was talking to Jenna Tang about um, lots of things. But one of the things we briefly touched on was it, we were talking about a piece of Taiwanese literature, and we were wondering is there anything that could kind of characterize Taiwanese literature as a whole? Because obviously it's a messy business trying to ascribe national characteristics to any kind of literature. And I think that's even more so for literature coming from China, which is such a huge and often, what's the adjective, 
I, I don't know what the adverb I'm looking for is, but the adjective I want is diverse, such a diverse yes. literary world. But something I've heard people comment on and something I think is true for Schwemo's generation of writers in stuff I've read in translation is there's, it's, everything is very embodied or the body is very, very foregrounded and important. Flesh isn't something you can escape from. There's a lot of descriptions of sometimes scatological stuff or just it's got that sort of very material biological thing going on. And I think it's maybe telling that Schwemo, even when we're in the desert, he makes everything alive. There's a very alive sort of feeling to to all sorts of things, where whether it's the plants, whether it's the sand, the sun, old man's sun as he's called, uh, the camels, even bullets are embodied with some kind of a mind or a spirit. And it's in a, on one hand, it does remind me of some other writers of a similar age who I've read. On the other hand, it's very peculiar and unique to, I guess, himself or to this this collection of stories in this book. Because, yeah, I've, there, there were bits when I was listening to the audiobook where I did the same double take I think you might have done there, Nicola. I was like, but what did he just describe? <laughs> but, you know, that's his style. I did have a question about his style, but you, you were both there talking about what makes the audiobook medium special. So I thought we could jump don't know if we're necessarily jumping forward because we might jump backwards again so if we can hop scotch to that question yeah what audiobooks in general is there a lot to sort of unpack and analyze about that medium uh, and what it can do well uh, i was thinking about this um there are several things that it does i mean the the first thing is that oral storytelling is the oldest form of storytelling that us humans have you know we sitting around a, a campfire um these days it's a bedtime story it's sitting in the pub telling your friends it's sitting over dinner oral storytelling is our oldest tradition and what audiobooks does is it it brings that into the reading process so um it's a very intimate form of storytelling um it's someone in your ear often people wear headphones when they listen to audiobooks i tend to not i usually listen to them when i'm driving or cooking or you know doing things around the house but it's still very intimate it's one-on-one -on -one. so there's um so there's sort of an element of that and then you have this for me it's the purest form of storytelling that's not on paper because you just have the narrator and the story and the listener and that's that's it there's no sound design there's no camera position there's no editorial input um, the only input that you might get is if I suggest maybe a character might be a different way. And then, you know, that's really as much. But most of the creativity comes out of the narrator's mind and their skill and their talent. And their. And as I said before, a narrator can bring something out of the text because they live through those characters that as a reader you might not see on the page. I can guarantee you virtually every single audiobook that I've produced or directed um the narrators have always pulled things out that I didn't see when I was prepping it. And I read all the books before, you know, we always make discoveries. We often find as we're recording, when we have our breaks, we sit and we discuss aspects of the story because they're so striking. And when you read something out loud, you do make discoveries that you, you don't discover on the page in the same kind of way. I, I think you really do. You, you're nodding there. You, you agree, Sarah? Absolutely. I mean, and it works both ways. I mean, you know, um, it was lovely to read the book 
just to read it for myself. And, and I got a lot out of it. But when you read a book, the simplest way to describe it is you live it. You absolutely live it. And your heart is in their heart. And there are times when you come out at the end of three days and it's felt like a whole lifetime, you know, and, and, and you sort of get in the car and you drive away and you're just a little bit, you know, you just a, a, a completely take because your whole mind and you've also been prepping the book it takes me my last book took me four most of the time my books take at least 40 hours of prep because it i I can't do it any quicker it's 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 as simple as that so you have to you have to love what you read so which i you know Um, you just go on this journey and it's very it's a it's what I've always described for uh, an actor who narrates. It's instant gratification because when you've done that work and you put your heart and soul into it, you you that's it. It's there. It's there, and uh, and it's got your name attached to it. So um, you, you you know you what you 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 put in. A hundred and ten percent, and and it and it just your your whole mind just takes over, you know, and it just comes out, and you you sometimes you are surprised at how a character comes out on the day, you know, particularly perhaps a character you've struggled with, and then you're in the middle of the story, and it just comes out of your mouth, which is um, a great relief sometimes. <laughs> but it, I mean, and it is an extraordinary process. It is for the for the narrator. It is physically grueling you know i always say particularly to new narrators do not arrange to do anything in the evening do not go out do not expect to speak to anyone because when you record the narrator is is reading for six hours in the day and you know if you think of doing another job for six hours in the day you know you think well you know six hours is a short day but actually when you think that you're physically creating these characters the mind is working it it, you know it is so it is um an amazing craft not everyone can do it not every actor can can do it you know it's um but prep is is so vital there's one other thing um well, the other two other things happen with audiobooks. One, obviously, is you can read more books if you listen to audiobooks, because you can read books when you're not able to sit down and read a book. <laughs> you know, so as I said, I listen to an audiobook when I'm driving, uh, when I'm cooking. Um, you know, I don't tend to sit down and just listen to an audiobook. It's a, so I listen to different kinds of books when I do that. Some people do it when they're running or whatever. And and the other thing about what audiobooks can bring to translated fiction is they can help readers who find they have barriers with translated fiction. So it can be that the names are a little bit scary. So, you know, you don't know how the names are pronounced. You see these words, they're not familiar. And that can put some people off and they're not quite sure who's who. Um, if the names are sort of the Chinese names, because they can be quite short and we know there aren't a lot of sounds in Chinese and they're not very familiar to people who aren't familiar with Chinese. Um, so that can be tricky. And what you can have, two things happen with an audiobook. One is the lovely narrator pronounces all the names correctly for you. So you don't have to worry about how they're pronounced. You know, there's no sort of making something up. I don't know how that is, but in my head, I'm reading it like this sort of thing. The narrator takes all that away and all of that sort of extra work is just gone. 
And the second thing is that a narrator creates the characters so you can hear who's who, even if you can't remember the names, you can hear who's who. I'll give you an example, which is not a Chinese fiction, but I directed Crime and Punishment. And uh, the Russian names are quite a challenge. And some of the characters have three different names. There's a nickname, there's a full name, there's a, you know, there's a, so they've got all these different names. Um, and the narrator I work with, we used, they don't have regional accents in the same way that we do in the UK, but we use British regional accents to identify characters. So, you know, for some, it's very interesting reading the sort of reviews on Audible. Uh, some people go, it's a bit weird having those, those sort of British regional accents, but a lot of people said, I knew who was who, because you knew that the mm. Welsh guy was the detective. And you knew that, you know, he, he the narrator did use different um, uh, voices as well as accents. So there was one particular chap who was someone's father who was from Yorkshire sort of thing. So this this brings something completely fresh to translated fiction and it can open up the, the, the sort of translated fiction to people who might not necessarily listen to it because they might have some barriers. So... Yeah, you've reminded me of the film The Death of Stalin. Did either of you happen to see no. that? No. Uh, well, there's a, a guy who comes in and sort of... Um, the whole film is sort of a... What's the thick of it style comedy? Just sort of awful political wrangling. And then there's this war hero general who defeated the Nazis in X number of battles shows up. He's played by Jason Isaacs. And he talks like this. Right then. Enough of that. And it's just perfect. Um... <laughs> I get I like my my feeling about swapping out regional accents so like I say say like copying and pasting a Scottish accent onto uh Dongbei in the northeast of China Manchuria for like some rough northerners that could be done really badly or it could be done really well and it's it's always but it's in either case it's an interesting intellectual game I I I I had a, a couple of years ago, I was looking into this about how I might do audio, but regional accents in China using British accents. Uh, yes, and and I had a lot of fun looking at that. And I think I took Scotland actually into the into the West. I took it because I thought that, you know, there was a sort of a nice variety. There. I'm trying to remember what we did. I think we thought Welsh for Manchuria. Which is kind of interesting because the Tudors came from Wales, so. Right, yes. I suppose now that I think of it, I'm sceptical about that sort of approach, but I'm mostly thinking in terms of the, the page. I think accents often do not look good on the page. Oh, no, they don't. You don't want them no. written on. You just want the actor to be able to bring them in. And I, I kind of yeah. get what you're saying in terms of it's sceptical. But the, the simple answer is if you have a lot of, a, a lot of characters in a book, in an audio book, you have to do something to help the listener because you can't assume right. that, you know, everyone being RP, you just can't, when you've got the variance of emotions going on, you can't always get them to land exactly, you know, some characters will, will overlap in terms of what they sound like. So yeah. um, you're, you're not right. sure about that, Sarah? No, I'm just listening. I'm okay. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a couple of technical questions. In fact, it's basically the same technical question, but for each of you, because I think you'll each have very different answers. Sarah, I thought I'd ask you first. And it's just this. Did working on this book in particular um, present any challenges for you that were particular to it? Um, good question. Um, when uh, I was 
when Nicola first approached me, I was a little worried because I'm not a Mandarin speaker. And uh, I mean, quite by chance during lockdown, I did study the pronunciation, uh, the, the pinyin pronunciation. Oh, excellent. And that, that was just by chance, um, which really, uh, and, and that involved obviously quite a lot of tonal practice as well. So it wasn't completely um, impossible for me. And then um, Nicola and I worked quite closely together, you know, and I had some prep prep time for it um and then uh, she she listened very carefully to every single time i spoke i, I spoke a character's name but um I, I i was a little concerned but then i sort of realized that the book I had to sort of think this through that the book had been translated into english and that my job was to read the english and to tell the story mm. you know in the same way that you would any other translated story which is interesting because we've just been talking about that the, the few things that I felt and I wouldn't necessarily describe them as challenges um, but they were just um, things that I was very aware of um, as a narrator and that was the sheer stamina that it took because the story is not plot driven you know it's mm. very simple it doesn't have huge twists and turns um, and it's that steady build-up of pressure, you know, on these on these women, um, and it was a that, you know going on that journey of survival of of over 150 pages on a life-changing journey. That in itself has its own has its own pressure on the narrator. I I love the fact that the narrator uh, that, that that the author. I'm sorry that the author had a very strong voice you know you really could hear the author speaking so what that does for a, a narrator is that they are so involved in being these women and then you would have a paragraph where you, <clears throat> excuse me where you step out and you 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 take as it were the the writer's point of view and and you can hear the writer and what that does do is it takes you away from the mindset of the character that you are narrating or the character that you are in that moment so i wouldn't really say that they were challenges i think i think i think the actual yes probably the stamina was a challenge to keep that going you know right until you know the very end of the story um but but it was really a very, very intense uh, and emotional experience. You know, I loved it. So those are my challenges. <laughs> Great. I'm sorry, I'm just going to flag up. We've gone past seven. Are you okay yes. to keep going for a bit? Just right. a little bit longer and then I need to, to, to mm -hmm. wave you goodbye. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, no problem at all. Did you want me to answer the same question? Yeah, I was, well, I was just going to cap that by saying totally appropriate that it was the, the challenge was endurance because that's the sort of story we're dealing with so I'm not surprised at all there nicola what about yourself did what were the sort of hurdles you had to figure out for for this project well uh, they're pretty close to sarah's actually so uh, effectively it was how we deliver the chinese words in an english language so i've always Oh, there are sort of two aspects with Chinese. There's like making the right, right sounds and then there's making the right tones. And, mm. you know, it's pretty straightforward to make the right sounds with a sort of 
I, I sort of know enough of the words, I know how to pronounce something that's in pinyin. But I did go back to the original and looked up and we checked the tones, basically. So um, and delivered a vocabulary list which had the right tones. But the biggest challenge is really bizarre thing. But because in Chinese tones, obviously, it's a form of stress, isn't it? You know, if you if it's a fourth tone, then the sound drops down. But in English, you can hear from the way I'm speaking. We use stress all the time. So how do you, you know, or how does Sarah talk about one of the characters and use their name in a way that naturally in English, the stress would go down, but the character tone goes up? That is, for me, the, the sort of technically most challenging aspect of the audiobook because Sarah is naturally narrating. Uh, and then I'm saying to her, oh, but that character's name is supposed, the tone is supposed to go up, not down. <laughs> and that's where, um, to me, that was the greatest challenge um, for Sarah, not for me, because she she's wanting to um, deliver uh, the right emotion, you know, and the stress and all of that. But at the same time, she's got me coming on the mic going, well, I'm not supposed to go up, not down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think for me, that was the biggest uh, challenge. And we found a way around it. You know, how do you make the name go up, but the the, the, the stress land as well. So, um, but I think it brings this wonderful aspect, actually, to Sarah's reading of the book, because it's got this lyrical quality. It's got these rhythms. It's got repetition, sense of repetition sometimes. You know, you can see Shuemo's influence from his huara songs and things from his childhood and and actually finding a way around this challenge just i think contributed to that delivery uh, in the end uh, that's what i would that's the way i viewed it people who listen to other china related podcasts might have stumbled across the chinese history podcast that's hosted by an american guy called laszlo montgomery it's actually the first china related podcast i ever listened to and I knew I was going to be working there, trying to, should have brushed up on my language, but I went for the, I don't know, the easy stuff that interested me. So I started listening to this history podcast. And I started wondering, why is he pronouncing some things so bizarrely? And then I realized a little further down the line, it's the names, uh, people's names and places that he's pronouncing using odd inflections. And I didn't, it didn't take me too much longer to figure out it's because he's taking extra care to pronounce the tones because Sure enough, he's a he's a very fluent and diligent speaker. So, mm-hmm. if if listeners are wondering what Nicola and Sarah are kind of describing, if you listen to an episode of his show um, and then listen to this audiobook, you'll it, you'll you'll get the same sort of thing. Although, of course, Sarah, you're doing something very special there in sort of uniting it with the flow of the story. And I can I can attest to someone who's listened to it. Yeah, it's it's impressive and it's unique. I've I've not heard anything like it, and I'm I'm not just saying that. <laughs> wow, marvelous! <laughs> Actually, that is that that is that is absolutely down to Nicola. Oh, my, right. really? No, seriously. My job was to tell that story, and because I knew that Nicola was listening to every single time I opened my mouth to say a Chinese word, I. I, I could just go with it because I knew that there was something that was not quite right. She would she would pick it up, you know, um, and that that was the support that you need. 
Yes. You know? mm. um, so it was, uh, I'm glad we pulled it off, Nicola. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> and on yeah. that note, I, I, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you so much. Likewise, Sarah, thank you very much for coming on the show. I think you are our very first voice actor or any kind of actor who's come on the show. So, yeah, it, it was even better than I thought it would be. Oh, and thank you for doing those readings as well. Those were great. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. It's thank been you. an absolute okay. pleasure. Bye. Likewise. Good to see you. Bye. 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 Uh, yeah, so there was a few questions we hopscotched over. Okay. I'm going to hopscotch back to them. Uh, the one I really want to ask yes. is about metaphors and messages, because although it's a really simple story, you do feel at points that Shui Amo is asking you to think, maybe not necessarily to analyse it um, on any deep critical level, but it does seem like there are messages and that there are symbols. Um, so what would you say about that? deeper meanings in the story. Hmm. Um, yes, there are. I mean, I, I guess, first of all, what I would say is it's a, it's a survival story. So mm. it is a story that gives you all sorts of ideas about what it takes to survive in this world, both physically in the desert and uh, metaphysically. Can I say that? And, and basically what it takes to get your mind through a period of intense stress so i think that that comes out of it um what happens is facing death seems to bring out the women's characteristics more strongly I, i'm not i don't know i'm going to be able to give you anything particularly good on this to be honest <laughs> it's all right simple things are often the most profound well kind of what i was thinking was what you find the two characters are, are split ying tends to be quite philosophical and she is the one who's thinking about her life, their situation, what it means, the environment that she's in. Lan Lan is the action person. But as we said earlier, at certain points, they, they flip. So what comes out as the overall message from these two characters is that, first of all, the importance of connection and collaboration, you know, the importance of being of of tolerating and being with people that that's sort of one of the things that i take out of it um the value of loyalty and you know they stick loyally to one another they don't give up on one another whenever one faces a point where they think they're going to give up the other one pulls them through so there's there's an aspect of that also something really interesting happens is that they each instinctively react to their their situation and that instinct drives them to do something that ends up with quite a surprising outcome that isn't what they originally attended. So, for example, when Ying basically has given up and thinks she's going to dig her own grave, she ends up producing a route out for them, although it's sort of with some danger involved. And likewise, when we don't see it, but Lan Lan relates to the fact that when she goes off to try and find a route out of the desert for them she drops to her knees and prays and when she's on her knees she discovers another thing that actually you know helps them get through their journey so i think there is definitely a message of the mind and the instinct can find solutions that are not what you think you're looking for but that actually help you in the way that you most need it so um whether that be 
divine intervention or just a human instinct that takes you sort of in a certain direction. So I, I think that's very present in the story. Hmm. I can actually bounce back on that because um, I I did find it kind of hard to think on any deeper level about the story because it is in one way so much just pure survival. But I figured all the existential stuff, it's impossible to ignore. And the least, at least the way when I whenever I think about these sort of questions about survival, striving, it leads me to think about what is the world? Is it a place that is good, good place? Is it a good place to be that nourishes you and is full of joys that make life worth living? Is it a place where you're constantly being dragged down? You constantly have to find food to survive. You're always losing energy unless you're eating. Your life is always ticking down. Your, your little health bar is never going up in that sense. There are a million ways you can hurt yourself, strain yourself. It's far easier for things to go wrong than go right. The force of gravity is always dragging you down. So is it an actively nasty place? Or is the world just neutral and indifferent? And is that scarier that because there is no meaning except meaning you inscribe yourself? So there's that angle. And I think when the characters are constantly deciding whether or not to keep on going, that's where my mind went. But then what you said there about it was not something I picked up on, that one character is thoughtful and reflective and lives in her mind, and the other is proactive and not so reflective. And it strikes, maybe I'm projecting here, but when we when we were talking about Schwemor early, early in this episode, we were saying, on one hand, he's very much of the mind. He's into Buddhism, he's into spirituality, he likes to write. Writers tend to be of the mind, not usually great athletes, maybe with some exceptions. But he's also into self-help, and he's extremely disciplined, so he's obviously got a handle on action as well. And my... I'm just spitballing here, but I think if you are a typical writer or intellectual type person, you it's very hard for you to naturally be proactive. You have to sort of think yourself into being like that, or develop the... cultivate the habit. So when I think of these two characters who kind of learn to be a little bit like each other, reach spiritual epiphanies, but also pull themselves out the dirt. To me, it kind of seems like it's a synthesis and it's an antithesis. Antithesis. Synthesis and antithesis producing a synthesis. It's two opposites merging to produce something that, that is more than the sum of the parts. So that's about as deep as I can get. No, no, but, the, and, and that, but that's interesting for two aspects, actually. One is in a biography that... I, that Shuomi sent to me, Shuomi sent to me, um, which is written from the first person. He says that this particular story captures the conflict he has between being spiritual and of the mind and being practical. Right. So what you've described is actually that it, he's made up of those two. And I think if you grow up in an environment that he grew up in, where you're on the desert's door, where survival is is such a struggle. There are, throughout the story, there are so many practical bits of information about how to survive in the desert. So that knowledge is 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 sort of there. And let me see if I can get the second idea back because it's gone. <laughs> second idea. Is it about the nature of the world? No, it was about. Um, I think it's gone. It's okay, sometimes these things reappear, sometimes they don't, only time will tell. 
travel a thousand miles in your head, you can find you can justify anything. If you're dying in the desert, you can use intellectual lines of reasoning or spirituality to tell yourself it's fine to just lie down and die. That's actually a good thing. Or you could, in your head, decide that actually life's worth living and you should get up and strive. But actually, you can't do that without taking action. <laughs> Thought thoughts a luxury, or it's a uh, a huge time waster. But it's yeah, when you're in conditions, you're you're forced to confront that. I think. But but it's very interesting, and I think the characters are in this very brutal environment. They're pushed to be very emotionally honest. So Lan Lan, the one time we get this massive confession that she talks to Ying about her marriage, which I think um, Sarah referred to earlier. Um, you know, for me, that's the part of the story that hits me the most is when uh, Lan Lan describes her marriage and her relationship with her husband. And that is, um, she just feels that she only has a very small amount of time left in her life. And she has to tell this sister-in-law of hers the truth about the experience so that everything's put into a context. So I think that's a really interesting, I mean, you know, it's an observation, um, is just the fact that when you are in an extreme circumstance, the desire to be truthful and to get your story down is very powerful. So, hmm. yeah. Not to make take us down too morbid a road here but um i remember um as like an undergrad or a high schooler often hearing people sort of reason that the fact that we're mortal that our lives are limited isn't such a bad thing because without time a time constraint or death to use the word nothing would have meaning it's it's a kind of a strange gift in a way in that it makes everything meaningful and i kind of understood that on an intellectual level uh, as a younger man but now I'm 28, so I feel like I'm past my physical peak, and I'm more, maybe more importantly, just in practical terms, the time came a couple of years ago to get a move on if I wanted to do things like own a house or get a decent salary later in my life. Certainly not there yet. But yeah, that time constraint was horribly stressful for quite a few years once I became aware that the time constraint, the time constraint existed. But it has pushed me to get myself together, and it did lead to getting out of the desert without oversharing. But yeah, it's um, it's it's not as dire a situation as being trapped under sand or hunted by doles. But once you face these things, it yeah produces some honesty that could produce salvation further down the line. Uh, I, I, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it, it may be a bit of a cliche, but we get a pearl from sand being. Uh, you know, from friction, from sand, isn't it? it friction mm. creates a pile. And the, the simple fact is, is that, and I guess actually this is also a Buddhist, very much a Buddhist concept, is that that we are structured and designed and constantly evolving as a result of the friction that we experience in our life. You can't get away from friction, and friction actually develops and, and, and um, matures you, basically, for want of a better word. So, um, and whilst we think that we might like to have an easy time of it, we benefit so much from these experiences and we develop and we grow so that it becomes, le you know, it would be lovely to have the physical sort of um, prowess and health and strength that one has in one mid-twenties. But there are so many other things that you would trade for that. <laughs> you know, there, there are... Um, once you get a certain amount of life 
under your belt. Uh, once you've dealt with these challenges that these women face, they face them in their life, but then they're facing very different challenges in the desert. puts everything into perspective. And it is um, a strangely rewarding process. You wouldn't think it would be, but it is. <laughs> mm. It's really funny you mention pressure because I'm going to do Shwe more proud here. I'm going to take us even more down the self-help road. I attended a three-hour workshop that my job hosted on mental health. Um, and the most, in, this maybe tells you something about me, my favourite part of it was where the woman running it asked us, what's the difference between pressure and stress? And first reaction, they mean the same thing. But actually, if you sort of stop and think, the, the conclusion me and the people I was in the group with arrived at is that stress is an internal thing, which is produced by pressure, which is forced from the outside, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. You could pressure yourself, but ultimately you're probably pressuring yourself because of something external. It could be social expectations, or it could just be time, which is that's the that's the constant pressure uh but yeah it's an interesting thing to think because stress it's hard to really say if stress does anything useful except tell you you're in a situation you should get out of a bit like pain whereas pressure if you can avoid converting it into stress which is like the acid in your body just like lactic acid in your muscles yeah it, what you said about the pearl is the perfect metaphor mm -hmm. stress sorry pressure can shape you and when things are shaped, they can be squashed, but they can also be turned into amazing sculptures. Yes, yes. Uh, and, I, I, you know, it, it it is a little bit semantics, but I, I totally hear what you're saying there. And actually, even physiologically, when you talk about uh, the stress systems within the body and, and, and pressure, um, pressure can be very beneficial. Um, and even stress can be beneficial afterwards, as long as you you break it. You don't, you know, it stops. Uh, constant pressure, uh, stress is not good, but we are designed to deal with stress and pressure, mm. and just it's actually knowing that you, but but not constantly because our body systems don't work well, and and with these women, yeah. they do. Going back to the story, they are dealing with with both things, you know. But actually, you get a sense from the story that the greatest stress that they've experienced is back at home in the village they both had you know these very challenging personal experiences back in the village as we discover on the journey so actually i think you're that's very interesting you bring that up because this is a very pressurized situation and environment that they're in but how they deal with it is particularly interesting because it's rare that they let the stress really get to them. They have moments, but then they pull one another out of it or something happens. I, I've not been in very many like situations where how I acted was really high stakes, be it a social situation or like physical danger. But the times that I have, it's true. Something kicks in and the stress is all <laughs> kicked down the road for later. Um, yes. Um, the adrenaline, I guess, kicks in instead. I guess we could talk more and more about this. I'm tempted to make it even more biological, but I think I can uh, speed us to the miscellaneous we should be section. On. <laughs> uh, yeah, got to get through the desert yes. to get to the salt pans. So my next thing was the, a regular feature on the show, uh, the musical pairing. Um, if you could set this story to a piece of music or if you could pair a piece of music with it, um, 
what would it be? Now, I, I have one picked out here. Yes. Do you have one yourself? Um, I don't. Um, I don't reference things in that way, but I do reference mm. things through film. So this story Perfect. actually reminds me of two films really kept coming to mind that deal thematically with this. And so um, would I talk about those now? Would you? Would we talk about Go for it, yes. No time like the present okay. to tell us what your films are. So the two films that actually I realised when I looked into them, they both came out the same year in 2013. I don't know why that is. Ah, right. One is Tracks, um, which is an Australia film. Australian film. It stars Mia Wasikowska. I think that's how you pronounce her name. It is the story of, based on a woman's memoir, a lady called Rob, Robin Davidson. And she took a journey with four camels and her pet dog across the Australian outback. Oh, I, I remember trailers for that. Yeah. You've stirred a very deep memory. It's a stunning film. It's a quite a quiet film. She, obviously, she does have human interaction. There is a um, Adam Driver plays, and I think, a New York Times. It's a, an American journalist photographer who takes pictures of her at different points on her route and she does meet aborigines at one point and you know so she meets certain people who help her on her journey but that so that's the one film and that's a very interesting film because she's on a spiritual quest basically she's trying to find herself but it turns into a survival journey so and the second film is called all is lost it stars robert redford Oh, yes, I've heard of this one. And it is a man on a boat in the ocean and the boat starts to leak. And it is one man and that boat for an hour and a half. And it is an absolute survival story. So all the little things he does to try and repair the boat and how he deals with the situation. Um, but it turns into something more spiritual because it is so... Um, it becomes transcendent. And it, those two stories always go through my mind I, I listened to the audiobook again before we recorded and it is such a visceral visual uh book the story this the the women the camels and the doll dolls and I, it it seems very cinematic to me you know i could totally see the the story as a film it i sort of don't know why it isn't a film it'd be a great first feature for someone because it's very, you know, it's a tricky environment, but just two actors and the camels. And the, um, so, yeah, so, so to me, now I'm, and there's probably music in those two films that actually might be appropriate for this, but actually it's thematically um, and, and in terms of structure, those two films really do have essences that relate to the story. Does All Is Lost have dialogue or does Robert... No, it's amazing. Post? There are, uh, I think it's less than 50 words. There's pretty much no dialogue. It is right. It is such a gripping film. I saw it in the cinema. Um, it was, the cinema was fairly full. There was a chap down the same row as me who nearly jumped out of his seat at one point. And at the end of the film... He couldn't get out of his chair. He just had to sit there for about five or ten minutes to recover himself. It's it, it's gruelling, uh, but absolutely fascinating and totally engaging um, because you're, you're watching all the small practical things that he does to survive. And you keep thinking all is lost. That's the title. 
and then he finds a way to to sort of move forward. So that sort of pattern is very similar to um, to our story. Wonderful. I have a much less profound choice. I've picked a song called Alive by Sading Ding, and um, I don't know how to pronounce all the characters. In, I, I could. It's a three-character Chinese title. I could see characters two and three were Wu and Sheng. The first character is Wan. So Wan Wu Sheng um, literally translates, according to Google Translate, as All Things Are Born, which is a wonderful title, much better than just Alive. Because it's an existential survival grind, um, not really because it evocates the desert, but because I guess, well, I haven't checked this actually, but I assume Sa Ding Ding, judging by that name, is a Han Chinese songwriter. But in this album that this, this, this song comes from, you can hear she's taking influences from around the sort of south and west of China. Um, there's a version of this song which is, it doesn't, it doesn't even say what language it's in, but it has. I think it's something um, towards like the Himalayas, maybe it's Tibet, maybe it's Nepal, maybe it's India. It's got all those sort of influences. So again, Gansu is not Tibet, um, but it's sort of music evocating that sort of region of China. And I felt that was sort of appropriate because Shuemo himself, again, as far as I'm aware, he's Han Chinese, but he's dedicated himself to Gansu, which is, you know, that's that's not a Tibet, that's not a Xinjiang but we're really far out away from the sort of the core of the Chinese nation, if there even is such a thing. I suppose it does have a bit of a spiritual feel, but really, I just love this song. Uh, because I don't have an awful lot of Chinese, Chinese music, so when I'm scrolling through a list of all my music, anything with Chinese characters for the names is going to get shoved at the bottom or the top of the alphabet, and a lot of them I just skip. But I usually stick this song on from this album, because it's just excellent and I need to evangelize for it. It reminds me of the movement of the camels. Mm. I can see the camels actually almost from behind. I can see their movement as they sort of move side to side. So I thought it was really evocative of the of of our journey. That's right. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, it does have that sort of plodding sounds negative. I don't know what a positive way to say plodding is, but it's got that steady I would, sort of rhythm. Um, what's the word? It's not wiggle, but it's something between a plod and a wiggle. Swaying? Swaying. It is swaying, yeah. Yeah, it's very sway, swaying sort of song. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think there's anything deep I can say about that. I'll just take us on to the next question. So this is the bonus question for Patreon. So uh, on the main feed, it'll sound like sped up 
Okay. But if listeners want to hear the full thing, head on over to the Trigific Patreon. There's hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff up there. And it's available for one USD a month. And if you're very naughty, you can pay for one month, download it all, and then cancel. And I still won't be mad because I got a dollar from that. So um, the question is, um, would you ever want to visit Gansu or any of the other harsh or arid regions, which tend to be in the sort of far reaches of China? So far from Shanghai. I think that concludes our bonus question. Ready for the wrap-up question? Should we move to those? Yes. All right. So the three million dollar question: If listeners want to buy this audiobook, where should we send? Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, pretty much anywhere where they get their audiobooks, it's available on your Audible's, Google Plays, um, iTunes audiobook.com it's, it's distributed very widely it's also available for academics or not necessarily academics people who prefer to borrow rather than buy it's available through libraries so mm. it's on overdrive it's on biblioteca um i think it's on a couple of other library um uh, platforms too so it, it can be ordered through libraries yeah. wonderful and Last of the wrap-up questions, is there anything or anywhere else you'd like to direct the listeners to or just anything we've not hit on that you'd like to hit on? In terms of where to direct listeners to, if they want to find out more about Shirei Mo, um, they could do a lot worse than going to the Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writing. Shirei Mo was their author of the month for January. So you'll find uh, right. one of his short stories, one that we haven't spoken about from the selected short stories is is on there in English and Chinese, and there's a little bit of biographical information. Um, we are running, um, we've been quite active on a Twitter account about Shui Mo um, in February this year, and that's at Selected Shui Mo, and that's around the short stories, and it gives you some biographical background on Shui Mo, some links, some sort of contextual things, and that um, will stay up. So, you know, you don't have to look at it in February. You can look at it at any time if you like. Um, Shremo himself posts a lot of his thoughts, um, as in his sort of philosophical thoughts, on a Twitter feed, which is at Shremo01. Um, they're mostly in Chinese, but occasionally they're in English. Um, he's also got a very good website that's in Chinese and in English, which is called shremo.cn. Um, so you can have a good old browse there on that. And then uh, I think also Paper Republic have some brief information on him too. So obviously want to give them a shout out as well. So that's yes. those are places where you can find bits of information. There's more, but, you know, those are the ones that I'm sort of conscious of that are, are, are active environments. One thing I'd add is he's also on Instagram or someone uh, is running a Shwemo Instagram. It seems like it's him or an assistant or something. And the Pinterest I mentioned earlier, I don't know how I stumbled across that, but there is a bilingual Shwemo Pinterest, which I've never found for a Chinese author before. That's interesting. Uh, well, and I wasn't aware of those, so I must look at them. <laughs> I think we've sort of covered so Stop rustling papers. I think we've covered so much. <laughs> I, I think we have, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm just really pleased that Sarah was able to sort of bring a, a you know a narrator's experience to um to the conversation uh, and her 
it was just really lovely to discover when we started working together that she was a Buddhist, so she had a very interesting connection to the text. Yeah, that's that's serendipity right there. Mm. Yeah, um, I think uh, this is the point where I say thank you very much for for coming on the show. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for talking about the audiobook. It's sort of nice to have an opportunity to do that. All right, we are reaching the end of the show, so I'll just say a really big thank you not only to Nicola Clayton, uh, who was there for the whole episode, but for Sarah Lamb, who stayed with us for as long as she could. It was a really interesting chat. Um, I love talking book production, as well as book uh, writing, translating, editing. That's a perspective I find very interesting that I'd like to be hitting on more in the show. Now, if you had any thoughts, anything we said, if you'd like to send your, well, convey let's say convey your opinion to me and if you'd like something read out on the show as well i suppose um then social media is a great way to get in touch so we have a instagram it's at trichific t-r-c-h-f-i-c on twitter you can just follow or reach out to me i'm at angus likes words there's a show discord where you can uh share your thoughts or ask questions to the rest of the fans or not all the fans obviously but the ones who also are on that discord i guess that's all i'll say about the social media One other plug I'll do is the show's Patreon. I thought I'd just talk a little bit about episodes that are queued up there for the future. So the next episode that is going to be coming out, it'll be on the 18th of March, is uh, it's the bonus question from the Bajin episode where I asked um, Tianqi what she would ask Bajin if she can ask him any question. And then the next one queued up after that are my post-read thoughts on actually having read Family by Bajin, his probably his most famous novel. So it's me talking for about half an hour solo about that that novel. Then queued up after that, there's my bonus question that I asked Jenna Tang, that where she'd uh, set a story if she could go to any time and place in mainland China. And then my next one, it's uh, it's takes and musings against our production thoughts because it's a book I actually produced, Open Air Cinema by Su Tong. I worked in production and some other roles working on that book. So you can get a really inside view of that uh, late, the, I think the latest uh, book in translation, English translation from Su Tong. And then queued up after that, we've got the bonus question from this episode. So there is a bit of a lag between these things. Um, if I was smarter, I'd, I'd rejig the order, but I'm not smart. I'm not smart at all. There are so many bonus episodes, it must be coming up on 100 now, I think. You can get access to all past ones and all future ones uh, by signing up as a patron. That is at least one USD a month, or you can contribute more if you want to be really lovely. Um, But yeah, it's just a way to support the show financially, basically. Of course, there are many other ways to support the show, it's not all about money. And I'm of the opinion the best thing you can do is spread the word. It could be digitally, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old fashioned and wholesome. You know, those are those are synonyms for my, my name, really. Wholesome and old-fashioned. And if you want to be wholesome and old-fashioned and spread the word, then tell your friends, tell your teachers, tell your camels, and tell the pack of doles that are hounding you to an early grave in the cold desert sands. I don't know why the desert sands are cold. The deserts are famous for being hot, actually. But... For whatever reason, that's where the doles are hounding you to. So please do, before they catch you and rip you to shreds, spread the word about the show. It's the right thing to do with your life. And on that note, Tai Jian. <laughs>